Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Lord's Day, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. This is our last sermon in our series in Genesis that we've entitled Understanding the Beginning. After today, we're going to take a break from Genesis and then, Lord willing, return to Genesis on the last Sunday of this year, and then we'll go into January. Uh, we're going to call that series Understanding the Patriarchs. So that's coming up uh, the very last Sunday of December and then into January and beyond. Welcome to all of our guests. We're happy that you're here. For those watching online, we love you. Hope you're well. And one of the enduring pictures that we have from the series in Genesis comes from the very beginning of creation. That is the picture of the lifeless, dark earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth was blacked out. There was no light. It was covered with water so foreboding that it could be described as the deep. This earth that supports life was at one time unlivable. There was nowhere for a man to stand, no way to see, and no way to live. It was the darkest of dark places. But right after that description of darkness and death and chaos, we get this phrase, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that was a hint. Really, it was more than a hint of what is to come. God's going to create light. He's going to separate the waters. He's going to cause dry land to emerge. He's going to bring forth life. He's going to give us life. You see, where the Spirit of God is, life comes. This very act at the beginning is what we have always known as children of God. God gives life to his children. And this truth about him relates to everything for us. The origin of the human race, the nations that rise and fall through the ages, and everything down to our own individual lives. God is the life giver. You may remember that we related that truth to ourselves, that before Christ, our lives were in the deep dark. We were lifeless before Him, but His Spirit hovered over us. And in Christ, and for Christ, and through Christ, He brought us to light and to life in Him. The Lord very much wants us to know that this is who he is. He's the life giver. In his love, he keeps bringing life through the darkness. There is no darkness that we know that he will not light up and bring life to us in. He always has. He is right now, and he always will. Do not doubt it, my brothers and sisters. And if you do doubt, then let us look again at Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to see that we should never fear because the God of love is always providing hope and always providing faith. Hope and faith, hope and faith, 
They establish us. They strengthen us. They comfort us in the dark times that we may face. They're God's provisions to us so that we know that the way things may be at present are not the way that they will always be. And they're not the way that things will end. Believe in God and hope in God. He has, He is, and He always will bring us to life in Christ. And that should never be doubted. It shouldn't be doubted now. It shouldn't have been doubted in the past. And it shouldn't be doubted tomorrow. Our text is going to show us that again today. So let's see what we have here. First, we see a bridge to hope. A bridge to hope. Let me get there to Genesis 11. There it is. A bridge to hope. Now, if you've looked at this passage, then you've already had a realization. Here again, we have another genealogy, another listing of generations. And you may wonder, what does the genealogy have to do with hope? It just seems like a list. And well, we know that all of God's Word is used to build His people up. And this is no exception. So, let me read the text to you. And as we read it, keep an eye out for a man named Eber. Look out for Eber. It's from his name that we get the word Hebrew. It's close enough in English, you see. But there's been some changes, obviously. Hebrew comes from Eber. That ancient Hebrew nation is named, takes its name from Eber. And there's a small nuance that's going to happen with the sons of Eber that we're going to see. It's really not that small. But in the text, you might miss it. And we're going to see that in a bit. So keep an eye out for Eber. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. 10 through 26. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Did I read that right? He fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. (laughs) A cheer, yes, thank you. Uh, Let me catch my breath. Okay, this here is the fourth listing of generations in these first 11 chapters. We had a listing of Cain's generations in chapter 4, then a genealogy of the other son of Adam and Eve, Seth, 
who, who uh, replaced the murdered Abel. So chapter 4, um, we get uh, the generations of Cain. And then in chapter 5, we get the generations of Seth. Then after the flood, we have a listing of the sons of Noah in chapter 10. That list focused more on Noah's son, Ham, who Noah had cursed. And then finally, here in chapter 11, we have another genealogy. Now, the reason I sorted that out is because there are some comparisons and contrasts to these generational listings that we're meant to pick up on. For instance, the list in chapter 4 is more similar to the list in chapter 10. And the list in chapter 5 is more like this list that I just read, the list in chapter 11. So what this means is that these four lists fit into two categories, a 4 and 10 and 5 and 11, two categories. These two categories represent two different lines of offspring. And you may remember one of the major themes of these chapters of Genesis since the fall of Adam and Eve into disobedience and catastrophe. In cursing the serpent, God revealed that the serpent would have offspring. The serpent would have offspring through the human race. And we see this straight through the Scriptures, straight through Jesus' days, all the way through the book of Revelation. And to illustrate this ruinous reality, look at what Jesus said to the religious rulers in John chapter 8. Here's what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Harsh. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? When he says from the beginning, can you see that Jesus is referencing the serpent and his offspring? He's referencing Genesis chapter 3. He's going back to the beginning of creation. And when the serpent interfered, the serpent's line of offspring doesn't end in Jesus' day, but continues to this very time. The Scriptures teaches that we're all enemies of God until we bow our hearts to Jesus and call Him Lord of our lives. The idea is this. Biologically, all mankind descends from Adam and Eve. But spiritually, since the fall of Adam, humans are essentially children of the devil. This only changes if we are adopted into God's family through the one true Son. The great serpent crusher, that's Jesus. There are only two families to belong to. Only two. It is black or white. It is binary. It is either the serpent's family, which is our default, or God's family in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great and glorious news is that Jesus is calling to everyone here today. That wasn't him, that voice you heard. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. 
Jesus is calling to everyone here today. To those that have not yet been adopted in his family, he's saying, come to me, come to me. And to those of us that already belong to his family, he's calling us too, to respond to him, to behave in a manner consistent with belonging to him, to obey. Won't you listen? He's calling right now. And that is what this is about. Remember where we're at in history at this point in Genesis chapter 11. Adam and Eve are set up in paradise, but they disobey and they're exiled from God's presence. Sin increases in the world and God's wrath comes with the flood. But then we start over. Is Noah the crusher? He seems that he might be. He stands as a man of faith and righteousness. But then after the flood, he gets drunk and throws off all his clothes and passes out like the most common fool that we've ever encountered in our lives. No, he's a temporary, he's a shadow crusher. He's not the crusher. He's not the promised one. He's a shadow of the promised one. But he's not the promised son. And then the decades and the centuries pass since, since the flood and humans pull their resources together into a great city, and they build a tower to the skies, the dark tower of Babel, and they want to make a name for themselves. They want to attain everlasting life through greatness. And here again, it seems that the serpent's seed will have its way, and all will be dark and lifeless for the human race. But God says, no, I'm not going to send a flood this time, but I will confuse your languages and I will scatter you humans over the face of the earth. You can imagine, this is the beginning of international conflicts and wars. If one is just observing human history, if you could take a step back and just watch it pass by, at this point in history, we could not blame the observer from evaluating and concluding that the human race is doomed. It is destined for simply darkness and death. This is a depressing trajectory. How could it possibly end well? And this is where humanity would always be. In a state of self-destruction, we don't have to look too far for that. To see our own society self-destructing, to see it happening around the world, either ideologically or actually in conflicts and wars. Unless God intervenes, the human race will implode on itself. But it's also through this deepening darkness that we're given this genealogy and this list of, of generations here in Genesis 11. It's a bridge to hope for us. Look at this comparison here between chapter 10 and chapter 11. In chapter 10, we see this. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered, and it goes on to say who he fathered. 
But in chapter 11, when we come to Eber, it says, When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived, after he fathered Peleg, 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. So it goes on to talk about Peleg's line. So Eber has two sons. And in chapter 10, we're given this curious detail about Peleg that you can see up on the screen. It says the earth was divided in his day. But then the verse goes on in chapter 10 to only follow Eber's other son, Joktan. And it follows his lineage, Joktan's lineage. It drops Peleg out of the, out of the chapter. But then go forward to chapter 11 to this genealogy that we read this morning and we hear nothing about Joktan, nothing. This chapter only follows Peleg and his offspring. Why? It's a hint. It's a bridge to hope. We have learned over the last two weeks that when the Bible says the earth was divided in Peleg's days, it's speaking of the confusion that God brought about at the Tower of Babel. That was the division that happened on the earth among the people groups. And here is where we get a note of hope. Because what comes through here is that the serpent seed is scattered out, divided, but also that the offspring of the woman, the other line, the one fathered by God, has been set apart. And there's something special about the lineage in chapter 11, about Eber and about Peleg. And it's this, that the promise of the great serpent crusher to come has not been abandoned. It's not been forgotten. It's not that God can't bring it about. It's that his plan is unfolding one step at a time, one generation at a time. And instead of failure, it is very much, God's plan is very much actively working through humanity and history through that time. And it's going down right through the generations to the, per, the point of God's perfect implementation. And you know we're waiting for the same promise today as they were in the days of Peleg. We await with longing for the return of our Lord Jesus in the clouds as we were promised. We belong to him and we know that upon seeing his face, everything will change and everything will be made right. Let us then have these truths strengthen our hope. No matter how dark the days, no matter how crushing the news, no matter how much deferral and delay there may seem to be, do not let your hope dim and do not be deceived. Nothing is forgotten by God and nothing is forsaken by God and nothing is abandoned by God. God is working and God will fulfill his promise. Jesus will return and we will see his face and we will be changed in an instant. In an instant. It may feel like the generations drag on and the seed of the serpent only wins and darkness keeps growing darker, but it is not all that is happening. When we look at the genealogy in chapter 11, we can see that there are 10 generations between Noah and Abram. Just as chapter 5 shows us that there were 10 generations between Adam and Noah. 
And also just like in chapter 5, that list was focused on life and children. Life and children. You see that, that it, it's, a, it's almost a syncopated tempo. Just That order just keeps flowing. And the ha- same thing happens here in chapter 11. Life and children. Life and children. They lived this long, they had children. They had lived this long, they had children. Life and children, that's who God is. That's what he gives to his people. And also like that list, Terah has three sons at the end of this list. And just like chapter 5, where Noah has three sons, there are more connections to that list in chapter 5, which is trying to say to us, God's working his plan through the generations. God's offspring keep coming, and in them will come the great crusher, the crusher of the serpent's head. Now, when we get here to the end of of this genealogy, just like with Noah's genealogy, this is a turning point in human history. It's an indication that there's a turn in human history. What happens at the end of this genealogy? Well, Abram has come, and Abram is the father of ancient Israel, the old covenant people of God. Abram, like Noah, is partial fulfillment of the serpent-crushing offspring promised at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, at the very fall of humanity into sin. Never fear. The God of love is always providing hope and faith. Hope and faith. This genealogy is a bridge to hope. And then the rest of the chapter gives us inklings of faith. Inklings of faith. As we turn to the rest of chapter 11, we find Terah and his family in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's not entirely clear where Ur was located. There's two particular spots that it really might be. Uh, Different schools of thought say one or the other. Uh, uh, But we believe this city was also dominated. There's good evidence that this city was dominated, just like Babel, by a man-made mountain, a brick mountain though not as large as Babel's, it was a three-level ziggurat, and each level had a distinct color to mark it. The top level of that pyramid, essentially, had a silver, one-roomed shrine to the moon god. And there is evidence to believe that the ritual of royal burials included the horrific practice of human sacrifice to that god. Ur was the leading center of lunar worship. And that is where we find our hero. So let's read Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. 27, 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, 
and Terah died in Haran. Now, we'd like to think that Terah and certainly Abram, the offspring of the woman, this line of the other, other seed, not the serpent seed, the other seed, we'd like to think that they were men of God in a dark place. But the evidence indicates otherwise. For one, the very names of these characters tell a story. The name Terah, which is Abram's father, is related to the words for moon and lunar month. The name Milcah is the name or title of the daughter of the moon god. And the name Sarai means queen and refers to the wife of the moon god. These folks seem entirely steeped and acclimated to their godless, idolatrous culture. But if that doesn't make it clear enough, let's have Joshua make it so. And Joshua was not one to mince words. From Joshua chapter 24, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah and Abram and their family, they were idol worshipers. Talk about dead and trespasses and sin. This was Abram's beginning, ignoble, not distinct. His starting point was someone who seemed entirely disconnected and disinterested in the one true God. We see that. And this is an important point for us. God's people ought always to remember and never forget what they were rescued from, how we were transformed, and how we were saved We see that here with Abram. Abram would always be able to look back as Joshua did and remember that he had been dead in his dark ignorance as an idol worshiper. There was a time when he did not know God, when he was an enemy of God, when he was one of the serpent's seed. And then he can be amazed that God called him. Israel would be reminded again and again in the Old Testament. It's fascinating how many times they're reminded again and again of that central work of salvation that God wrought in their nation, how God rescued them from slavery and brought them out of Egypt and made them a nation to look back and to remember what they were rescued from, how they were rescued to think about what would have become of them if God hadn't rescued them. And brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, we know this ourselves, don't we? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We could go to many other places. It is good for us, brothers and sisters, to recall what we were rescued from when God saved us in Christ, not so that we can exalt in our previous state or think back on it fondly, but so that we can remember our desperation and the certain end of the way of life that we were in, and then to become filled with wonder and gratitude again that God saved even you and even me in our dark place. 
As you read the Old Testament, you you realize that God often reminded the people of what they had been saved from when their hearts had become calloused, when they were lifted up in pride. And the deacon, Stephen, he did this in the book of Acts. When the religious rulers could not see that Jesus was the promised one, so he preaches to them, and part of what he preaches to them is a, is a remembrance of how God saved them and delivered them, rescuing them out of Egypt and the slavery that they were in. And in that case, it did get him stoned. But you can see that this is a means of breaking up the fallow ground of our hearts. When our hearts become calloused, when they become dull, when they're unmoved and unaffected and untouched by God. Let me ask you, has your heart become calloused? Does it lack gratitude or compassion for your brothers and sisters? Has your heart become stubborn or fixed on the passing things of this world? Today's a good day to revisit your salvation story, is it not? Every Christian has one. Every one of us. Whether you were saved at 50 or you never knew a time when you didn't believe, you still have a story of salvation. You can still recognize what you had been rescued from, what your life would have become if you believe you have the story. What did God, what did our Lord rescue you from? How did He rescue you? Who did He use? What message broke through? What amazed you into belief back then? What would have been the course and then the end of your life without Him if He had not rescued you? If He did not say, stop everything, look at me, now believe, I rescue you. How did you come to believe? Remembering his salvation will soften and warm your calloused heart toward your Savior. Today's a good day. The Lord's day, today's a good day to do that. The last portion of our verses here tells us that Terah moved his small and grief-stricken family out of Ur to Haran. And we do know where Haran was, by the way. They, they've identified that place uh, precisely. And there does not, by the way, appear to be any connection between that place and the name of, of the son that Terah must have been grieving and the brother that Abram had to be grieving The death of Terah's son combined with Sarai's barrenness had to be a devastating combination for people who who thought that their peace and prosperity was tied to the size of their families. Functionally, that's the way it worked. If your family was small, it was weak. The question, though, comes in, why do they move? Why do they move from Ur to Haran. And if we just look at these verses, there's no discernible motive just right here at the end of chapter 11. But if we take what we've learned about these, about Genesis and over these chapters, the picture can become clearer for us. 
We've learned that aspects of these stories are not necessarily chronological. Not that they're wildly out of order, but they're not necessarily chronological. And for instance, not, the, the, the oldest son is not always listed first. Sometimes they're listed in order of importance for the sake of emphasis in the story. And in another instance, the Tower of Babel story, which comes in chapter 11, actually explains the different people groups in chapter 10 and, and where they ended up settling. So the story that, that explains the list comes after the list. And so we see that in the book of Genesis. We see that, they, that, that, that the author, by the Holy Spirit, that Moses, by the Holy Spirit, uses different methods to emphasize certain truths and principles, certain realities that are coming about. Babel comes before the scattering of the peoples, but the story is told after the list. And then if we go into the next verses that come in chapter 12, after the ones we read here, we can see that God calls Abram, calls Abram to a different place. And what is that place? It's Canaan, the very place they set out for, the very place Terah originally sets out for before he settles at Haran. So what seems to be happening here is that in that very dark place of Ur, where they're being idol worshipers, coming to the temple of the moon god, in that very place, Ur of the Chaldeans, In that place is where God calls Abram. It appears that God's calling of Abram actually happens in Ur. And the amazing thing, that's amazing enough. What's, what, what even tops it off, what, what makes it even greater and, 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 and more miraculous and mind-blowing is that Abram obeys. He obeys. He goes. He believes God and he goes. It appears that he semi-persuades his father to pack up and to leave Ur and to, to make a direction, a course for Canaan. They only get as far as Haran, which might not be that far away from Ur. And maybe they have to stop there because Terah refuses to budge, or maybe they have to stop there because he couldn't go any further. It appears that Abram was the dutiful son and stays there until his father passes. We're not quite sure what the reason they stay there for, but at least, hear me now, at least they begin. Abram hears God, and he obeys. This is an inkling, a hint, a clue that there is some faith here. We see God working, and we see Abram responding. Now, Lord willing, when we get to the next portion of Genesis, into early next year, we're going to see how Abram grows in faith through the many years of his life. Some of, some of those years are quite painful, and Abram grows in faith in God. And, and it culminates in this glorious act of obedience that points directly to Jesus.
But here we see the beginning of it. We see the start of faith. Let me ask, was, was faith perfected in you the moment it came to you? Did you obey everything immediately all at once forever? No. It started in us. God planted it in us and grew it in us and we've grown in it. And God is doing that in us even now. You might even say here at the beginning of faith in Abram, you might even say that we see a seed of faith. And as we know, Jesus used that analogy, right? And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, that would be a pretty cool parlor trick, wouldn't it, if you had that kind of power? And we tend to look at this verse and think that this verse means that we should be able to call upon some deep power and do the utterly miraculous in a moment just to be amazed at the sheer power displayed. Frankly, that's more like a magic trick than what Jesus is actually getting at here. All of the Bible teaches us what faith is, and there's much more going on here than a magic trick. You see, faith works itself out in obedience. When we have faith, we obey. Faith works out in obedience, not showmanship. Just look at Jesus. Just look at where his faith led him to the cross, to burial, but then to resurrection. Now look back at Abram. He obeyed. At least he moved in the direction of obedience. God wasn't done with him yet, but Abram took a step of obedience because he believed. Abram was to go on to become Abraham, a father of many nations, but most importantly, the father of the people of God, Israel. Ultimately, Jesus, the great crusher of the serpent's head, comes through Israel. We are seeing here, at the end of chapter 11, the first little step toward the movement of a mountain in this world. The miracle that God does through the faith of Abram is far more spectacular, far more meaningful, and far more effective than a magician's trick. We know where this little stirring of faith goes for Abram. The seed has sprouted and it will grow mighty. We may know that for him. But do we know it for us? Do we recognize that the seed of faith that God put into Abram that led him forward into the life that God called him and accomplished all that God had for him is the very seed of faith that he has placed in us faith to believe that God is and that he rewards those who seek him. See, we may know that for Abram because we read the story and it's right there and okay, that happened. But do we know it for us? Do we know it in our time? Do we know it in our lives with our family and in our jobs, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our studies, in our work, in our relationships, in our our finances? 
in what's broken in us? Do we know it when we fail that God's not done? That this isn't a time to abandon faith, but to recognize that God is growing it in us from that little seed. Do we know that this is for us? Are you, dear friends, struggling to trust the Lord today? Where is your faith absent? What situation seems to be beyond any useful outcome? Or what person seems to you to be beyond the reach of God's arm? Well, let's look at that inkling of faith in Abram and look at its outcome and welcome the Lord to stir up your faith and to grow it. And trust that he's doing just that. Have faith that he will give you faith. Faith for his grace. Faith for today and faith for the days to come. And celebrate the steps of obedience that come from faith. No matter how small they may seem. Pray, trust, obey, believe the Lord. Never fear. The God of love is always providing hope. And faith. I'd like to ask the worship team and the ushers to come. We're going to close our meeting today by coming to the Lord's table. The perfect way to, to respond to God's word. We practice open communion here. That means that if you trust the Lord Jesus, if you've been baptized into the Lord Jesus, and if you're in good standing with your church, you should come and partake this meal is for you. Now, if you don't fulfill those requirements, we ask you to refrain for your own sake. Please don't misunderstand. This is for your own sake. You do not want to pretend that you belong to Jesus when you do not. You can fool us, but you cannot fool God. Now, if you haven't trusted the Lord and you can't come to his table, let me encourage you, trust him today. Turn from sin. Trust in him. Be baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will gain eternal life. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.